0: We'll allow our kids, Children's Church age. you all may be dismissed to Children's Church this morning. Hope you who remain with us will turn into John chapter 7. The theme, um, it's, it should be in your outline. Um, it won't be exhaustive because I didn't get through as much as I thought I would get through in the preparation. But Jesus is the Savior who embraces God's timing, speaks God's truth, obeys God's will, and makes people whole. Is there somebody about whom you or your spouse or maybe you or a close friend have completely different positions on? We have polarizing figures in our culture. Maybe your spouse really likes a celebrity that you just can't stand. Polarizing. In American culture, Maybe a polarizing musician is Taylor Swift. I just wanted to see our youth as I said that and see what happened there. Uh, so, some people just love Taylor Swift. Some think she gets way too much attention at Kansas City Chiefs games. A polarizing athlete is LeBron James. Some people think he is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Others of us still think Michael Jordan is. Very polarizing figure. In terms of politics, a a polarizing politician is Donald Trump. People have wildly different opinions about him. Some love him, some do not. Well, it's one thing to have very different opposing opinions, maybe on athletes or musicians or on political figures. It's another thing entirely when it comes to the Savior of the world. And no person in history is the object of more divided opinions than our Lord Jesus and some people I I hope you included worship him as the king of ages immortal invisible the only God and others just want nothing to do with him others just do not want anything to do with Jesus so as we look as we saw in John chapter 7 as Hannah read for us This morning, you see people with various opinions about Jesus. His very own half-brothers don't believe in Him. Yet. Then there's the crowd. Some in the crowd think, He's a good guy. He's a good man. Others think, He's a false teacher. He's leading people astray. Jewish leaders want to kill Him. So we come here into John chapter 7. One of my commentaries says John 7 has 20 questions in it. I didn't count them. I'm just taking the commentator's word for it. But here's the most important question we need to ask and answer in John chapter 7. Who is Jesus? Is he just another pretender? Messianic pretender? One of many that came and went? Or is he really the Messiah to whom we owe all our allegiance and devotion. All right, well, let's dive into the text. The context of this event is the Feast of Booths. Now, there were three primary festivals in Jewish life that required the attendance of Jewish males at Jerusalem, and this one was the most popular, and it recalled God's provision for Israel during their wilderness wandering when the people would have wandered in booths or tabernacles or as we would say tents and so those people who were residents of Jerusalem during the feast of booths they still wouldn't stay in their houses they would pitch a tent either on their roof their flat roof or maybe in their yards and then they would have a lot of visitors who would come to Jerusalem and those people would camp out where they could within the city confines of Jerusalem. So as this week long type feast, thing it was a week long, is about to begin, Jesus' brothers recognize that lots of people are going to be coming to the city. And they suggest to Jesus, this is a great time for you to go to Jerusalem and make yourself known as the Messiah. Now, please understand, they don't make that suggestion out of faith in Jesus. Verse five clearly says that they do not believe in him. For not even his brothers believed in him. So what are they doing? What is their purpose in this? Well, Jesus has operated in Galilee for about the past year. Now, I am not strong in geography, but if you think about Jesus' ministry in Galilee, that is rural-type ministry. His, brother thinks, or his brothers think he needs more of a city-type of influence. So for us, it might be thinking like, for the last year, Jesus has worked in a place like Dixie, McLaurin, and Brooklyn, and he really needs to get to Jackson, is what the brothers think here. At some point, you know, if you're going to be a candidate, a presidential candidate, you can't just go into small towns. You've got to hit the big cities. So the brothers don't think being in Galilee for the last year out in kind of the countryside is the optimum way for him to gain a big following. After all, Jesus, if you're claiming to be the Messiah, you've got to get to Jerusalem. The temple is in Jerusalem. Sacrifices took place at the temple. Have to get to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is central to Jewish religious life, Jewish political life, Jewish social life. And if You're going to be the candidate for the Jewish Messiah. You have to go to the capital of Judaism. So, Jesus' brothers, they think this is the perfect opportunity. You're going to have Jews from all over the nation flocking to Jerusalem. Maybe thousands of new people there. The crowds are going to swell. The who's who of religious leaders will attend. So, Jesus. If you're going to market yourself, this is the marketing opportunity you need to take advantage of. Get to Jerusalem, announce yourself, gain a following. Hand out your business cards. Make sure people have your QR code. They can scan it and get to your website. But Jesus, you need to go there and gain some fame. And listen, everything they say makes sense from a purely human perspective. And yet Jesus will have nothing to do with it. Now he says something odd to them. He says, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. That's in verse 6. We have one English word for time. I might say to you, hey, what time is it? And you look at your watch and say, it is 1121 or whatever it is. But we often mean more than just chronological time when we use that word time. You may hear something like it's time to say goodbye to your loved one. And we know that means more than it's just 8.30. We mean this is an important moment. They're soon going to pass. So what we think of in the Greek, there's two words for time. One is chronos. where we got our word chronological. That's just the passing of time. Another one is a word for this is a significant moment. So what Jesus is saying to them, he's using that second word, that kairos word, this significant moment to say to them, my time, in other words, the crucial moment for me going up to Jerusalem isn't here. Yours is any time. He's saying to them, you can go now because you belong to this world, but I have to follow my father's timing and his will. Now, As we are looking at this, as Hannah read this, maybe you got tripped up about Jesus saying, He's not going to the festival. And then He goes to the festival. It might look like Jesus told a little lie here to His brothers. Now if He did, everything's off for us. Jesus had to be the sinless Savior to go to the cross to die for sinners like us. Even one little white lie would have destroyed that. So Jesus didn't lie to them. Jesus isn't peeking out the window, waiting for the brothers to leave, Say, I fooled them, I'm going up now. That is not Jesus' motivation here. When Jesus says, I'm not going to this feast, even there are some older man, old manuscripts that say, I am not yet going. Now, the reason that's in some manuscripts is because, so the manuscript tradition is you have the original document, and they didn't have a copy or like we got in the office. They couldn't make copies. They didn't have a printing press for a long time. And so what happened was scribes would make copies. Scribes would copy by hand. Well, some of the scribes who were copying this, they got really uncomfortable that Jesus said, I'm not going to this feast, and then he goes. And so they put the word yet in there to protect the character of Jesus. Well, that wasn't necessary because of the context. Here's what's going on. The brothers have in mind a specific idea about Jesus going. Jesus, you're a wonder worker. You need to go to Jerusalem and promote your brand. So go to the festival like everybody else. Go at the beginning. Enter into it so that people can celebrate you. And Jesus won't go at the beginning of the feast for that purpose. He's not going to go for their motivation. He waits for God to say, go. Not his brothers. And he embraces God's timing at the middle of this feast. So maybe an aside here for us. This is a great lesson for us. We can trust God's character and God's timing. Sometimes it's hard for us to trust God's timing. We generally think God should answer sooner than he does, right? But I want us to understand God's timing is always right. People might say something like, well, God came through at the last minute. And it makes it sound like God is a juggler who has all these balls in there and he almost dropped one, but he caught it. That is not how our God operates. God is sovereign. He is sovereign over every moment. And his work, his timing in our lives is always Perfect. We can trust him because of his character. He is working out his purposes in our life and this world based on his purposes. So, we should trust God. That is what Jesus does here with his brothers. So, he goes to the feast in God's timing for God's purposes and in God's way. Notice how he goes. He goes up, verse 10. In private. Now you may say, well, how does he go in private if he's teaching very publicly at the most important location in Jewish life at the temple? And he's teaching at the temple where the crowds are swelling and surely there's a massive audience who has gathered. How can he be doing that in private? Well, I think what he is doing is he is fulfilling God's purposes for him. Later on, he is going to show up in Jerusalem, and they're going to, you you know this story, they're going to wave palm branches. They're going to lay down uh, their their cloaks. And Jesus is going to come in. They're going to publicly celebrate him. They're going to call him king of Israel. That is not his purpose for going now. That time's coming. Not here now, here in John 7. He doesn't go in that way. He doesn't go at the beginning. doesn't come to be celebrated like that. He goes in the middle of the feast to teach about who he is. And what he's doing in all this is he is rejecting the popular notion of here's how Christ should function. If a Messiah is coming, he should be a political, militaristic ruler setting up a kingdom that's going to oppose Rome. He is not doing that. He is going to be the Messiah they need rather than the popular Messiah they want. He is going to be the dying and rising Christ. You see here intense escalation of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Popular Messiahs do not get crucified on crosses. And that is Jesus' purpose all along. So understand the way Jesus goes up to Jerusalem is not to increase his approval ratings among the people. This is another step on the road to Calvary for Jesus. Okay. So he, as he's, when, he when he's coming, you see it's not just the brothers who are expecting Jesus to show up. Many others are also wondering about him. There's a lot of buzz going on about him. He's done a lot of miracles, and most of those have been away from Jerusalem. So a lot of people have heard about him. They probably expect him to show up in the very way the brothers think he should go. But people are looking. Look in verse 7. They ask, where is he? And they're asking that in a verb tense, meaning that question's being asked a lot about him. And we see that opinions are divided on him. I find it interesting in verse 12 that the word muttering is used. And there was much muttering about him. Now that word can mean whisper. It can mean grumbling. Maybe there's some of both since opinions are various about him. Ultimately it probably just means they're talking in low kind of speech because you see here, The crowds are afraid because of the Jewish leaders. Verse 13, Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. They want him dead. And so the common people are fearful to talk about him. So here's the opinion of the Jewish leaders. He should die. Here's the opinion of some in the crowd. He is a false teacher. He is leading the people astray. He's just another pretender. And then there are some who speak positively. He's a good man. And I think that's what you say when you know he's done a lot of miracles, when he's healed people, when he's fed 5,000. Based on his works, that's a good man. Now I think every one of us in this room are much more sympathetic to that crowd than we are to those who want him dead. And those who think he's a false teacher, we're sympathetic to the position. He is a good man. But I also want to say that's not enough. In our hearts, it's not enough to merely think Jesus is a good guy. Now, we understand those who claim Jesus leads people astray, they're dead wrong. They don't understand. They don't get it. But even those who appear to speak positively for him don't fully grasp who Jesus is or give him the allegiance that he so deserves. I think this is important for us to hear. Maybe in particular, in our context of a Bible Belt culture, many around us might know the gospel. Maybe they have been in church, maybe they have even professed faith, and would certainly say Jesus is a good man. But that is not equal to have surrendered to him as the only one who could rescue from sin and making him Lord in our lives. Those who merely say he's a good man, they have to get lost before they get saved. I mean, I've, I've prayed for our youth on this retreat. That if there's those who have respect for Jesus, who don't slander him, but have respect for him, but maybe haven't truly trusted him, that they would. But, church, that's not just relegated to our youth. There are many people around us with a country music view of God. He's the man upstairs. But it's not enough to just see him as a good guy. But we have to see him as the only Savior who can rescue us from sin. This morning in our prayer time, Brother Will and Miss Donna were sharing about their mission trip to Ecuador. And one of the highlights of that trip was a 99-year-old man in Ecuador putting his faith in Jesus. I don't know what percentage of people live to be 99, but it's not a whole lot of them. God, in his mercy... Gave this man 99 years. For 99 years, he had not followed Jesus. He was going on his way. I don't know what he thought about Jesus, but he came from a Roman Catholic type of background where he knew some things about Jesus. I don't know about him, but I know that at some point, every person who is going to be forgiven of sin must turn to Jesus and surrender and in faith. And praise God, this man did, though it took him 99 years. But every one of us have to move from seeing him he's just a good man to he is the only 100% God 100% man perfect in every way who could deliver us from our horrific sin and deliver us into the kingdom of God there's one and that is Jesus so there's all this talk going on about Jesus in Jerusalem he arrives, he goes to the temple he teaches and people marvel now, we don't even have the transcript of what Jesus taught in the temple at this time. We don't know the content. John doesn't give us that. But we do know his people are amazed at his ability as a teacher and his knowledge of the scriptures. I'm sure they're questioning how this carpenter who never went to seminary, who never were in the right rabbinical schools, how is he better than the PhDs that are standing around as far as a teacher? So the way the scribes taught is they would have to go through a list of the ways many other rabbis had interpreted the Old Testament text, and they would have to just list those out. Well, Jesus didn't teach that way. Jesus taught with authority. Now, even good and true Old Testament prophets, their declaration was, Thus says the Lord. And then they would say what God had said to them. But how Jesus taught was truly, truly, I say to you. So there is an authority in his teaching that shocks people because that's not what they're used to with the scribes of their days. This is a unique authority that Jesus has. So then why are his first words to them? My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Jesus answered them, those that are shocked by his ability recognizing surely the authority the difference in his teaching his first words to them is to say this doesn't come just for me i am not here as a lone ranger out on my own i'm not just another pretender my teaching comes from the father he's the one who sent me well then he Demonstrating this authority, he says more. He says in verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, that's a lot in that verse. And I think there's great comfort in this verse in terms of our evangelism, in terms of our missions. As we tie it into some things we've already seen Jesus teach in John's gospel. If we go back to John chapter 6 verse 37. Jesus says all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And then later on that chapter in verse 44. He says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So we take this, and we go back into John chapter 7, there are people all over this chapter who miss who Jesus is. His brothers, so far, have missed it. Those who were in his household for decades, they have missed who Jesus is. There are some in the crowd who thinks he's leading people astray. They have missed who Jesus is. There are those who think merely that he is a good guy. They have missed who Jesus is. Then there are Jewish leaders who are so jealous that they want to kill Jesus, certainly they have missed Jesus' will, or or Jesus' person. So they don't want God's will. So when Jesus teaches them about who He is, they miss it. They they miss it. Now you say, we just said you take great comfort in, in light of these verses, how so? Here's the comfort that I take from it. There's a person, the Father will draw to Jesus, they will desire the will of God, they will hear the gospel, and when they hear the good news about Jesus, they'll say, that's the one I have been waiting to hear about. There is a man in Ecuador who is 99 years old, And by all accounts, for those 99 years, he should have been in hell. Just like I should have been before turning to Christ. And yet, God sent a team from Arkansas, from Mississippi, and from somewhere else that I forgot where, to get the gospel to him. So that at 99, he would hear it and he would say, that's the one that I have been missing For 99 years. Now it makes sense. This is the Savior of the world. So we see that just in this morning's testimony about the man in Ecuador. We see it in Acts chapter 8, right? We read the story this morning about the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's from God's side, the Father is drawing this man to Jesus. And then from the human side, this person is yearning to know God's will. So he's reading the Old Testament. Text doesn't make any sense to him. He doesn't get it. He's reading from suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52, end of it, in Isaiah 53. So here's what God does. God takes Philip. There's a great revival seemingly going on in Samaria. There are many villages that are hearing the preaching of the word. And Philip is so active in this revival. And what God does is move Philip from this great revival going on in Samaritan villages and he takes him to this one guy. Now by human, by the way we count numbers, like we're, we we want to be strategic, we want to go to the places where we have the most opportunity for the gospel, all that makes sense. But by those type of metrics, it really doesn't make sense to take Philip from participating in this revival where many villages are being affected to go to one guy. But God did it. Why? Because he loves that one guy. Just like he loved that 99-year-old man in Ecuador and sent people to him. Sent people with great frustration. They tried to get on a plane one morning, plane got canceled, they like drove to Gulfport had to drive back, finally got on a plane the next morning, got there, all that struggle and one man came to Jesus and all of it was worth it, amen Miss Donna all that was worth it, right so God sends Philip to this guy, here's what happened verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with his scripture he told him the good news about Jesus told him the good news about Jesus And we see, just like that, believes, he gets baptized. God sent the gospel to him. That's why I have great comfort and and encouragement from from verses like this. Does God have people that he wants to save in Iran and Saudi Arabia and Israel? I believe absolutely so. And I think God is going to send believers into those areas, equipped with the gospel who will open their mouths and tell the good news of a Savior who came to die on the cross so their sin could be forgiven, regardless of how bad their sin is, regardless of how long their sin has lasted, regardless of how long the rebellion has been, and say, this Jesus, His blood takes care of all those sins. And when they hear it, they'll say, that's who I have been looking for. That's the message I have been wanting. They're not going to hear Jesus' teaching and say, He's leading people astray. That's, that's just another pretender. That's just false. So will say, No, he's, he's true. He's from God. And the way we see that is by faith. It is by faith in Jesus. I, I believe, God, the names of some of the ones on these posters on these walls I believe they're going to hear the good news about Jesus and say, that, that's it. I need him. It's already happening, church. It's already happening. Let's get involved and, and, and tell them the good news and, and hear them say, that's, he's there and that's what I've been searching for. So if you, we spend a lot of time in verse 17, rightly so. Jesus anchors the reality of verse 17 in who he is, his character expressed in verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He comes in God's authority, seeking God's glory. And in many ways, that's an indictment on the Jewish leaders. In John chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus says to them, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the Holy God? They're busy seeking their glory. Jesus is seeking the glory of the Father. And you see this message, when it's proclaimed, yes, people will see that it is true. But I want you to see this goes farther. This goes deeper. Jesus says, not only are his words true, though that is absolutely right, They see He is true. He is the truth. The one who seeks the glory of Him who sent Him is true. And in Him there is no falsehood. So I just want to say if you have been seeking truth, and that is a right search. We should be seeking truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the answer for our sin problem you have to see this by faith because there are some even theologians who would take Jesus' words put them on a table and dissect them like a frog trying to determine if they're true and they're missing it because they're not looking in Jesus in faith and belief that is not the right way to do it the most uneducated person can hear the gospel of a crucified and risen savior and believe and have greater understanding than an unbelieving scholar who has spent years studying if someone is on a search for truth i believe that search is going to be frustrated until they turn to jesus i believe that if they are looking to buddha or allah or crystals or money or fame they're always going to be left wanting because that can do nothing to cure the sin problem in our hearts it won't touch it and they're going to keep looking but I also take great encouragement to know that when we turn to Jesus our search is over to know the one who is truth means there's no need to go anywhere else. Have you ever lost something like your car keys, phone, wallet? Maybe uh, you're searching for it and you finally, you finally found it. And uh, you're, you maybe, maybe your spouse says, well, where did you find it? And you say something brilliant like, the last place I looked Found an entryway table, last place I look. Nobody says, you know, I found it, but I'm going to check a few more spots to see if I can find them. Well, that would be silly. Well, I mean, that's absurd, right? Well, I found my keys. Let me check a few more spots. Maybe I'll find my keys again. No, when you find the keys, you stop your search. Well, when you find the truth, there's no need to go looking for truth. You have found it. Jesus so perfectly satisfies that we need not go anywhere else. And then the rest of our lives, we get to know him more. Central to our knowing Jesus, being drawn by the Father, seeing him as the Messiah that we need, not the one the crowds wanted. Right in the middle of all that, it's his going to the cross. And I think the shadow of the cross hangs over this account. Look at the many times it's stressed that people want to kill Jesus just here in John 7. In verse, chapter, uh, chapter, sorry, verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Verse 13, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Verse 19, Jesus bluntly says, why do you seek to kill me? The world hates him. Notice that Jesus' brothers, they haven't believed. And Jesus pinpoints the problem with them is because they're of the world. Verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. So here are these brothers. They have a worldly mindset. They don't believe him. They belong to the world. They're thinking like their world. And by so doing, they can't see the things of God. They think, well, just go gain popularity. And Jesus has, has and will become so unpopular that these Jewish leaders will eventually kill him on the cross. And by doing so, they're going to think, hey, we're in charge here. when they're actually fulfilling the plan of God because eventually outside of this very city, they are going to nail Jesus to the cross and he is going to die. And that is the plan of God. So he could atone for our sin, rise again victorious, and give us life in him. So when we go back to verse 7, Jesus testifies about the world that its works are evil. And I want to ask you this question. Why does Jesus testify about the world that its works are evil? Why does he do that? Is it for judgment? I think it shows his righteousness. And for those who reject him, yes, it shows his judgment. But Jesus shows us the evil of our works primarily to save us, primarily so that we will see their evil as well, that we'll see his way is right, and that we'll repent of our sin and trust in him. So he's testing, or he's testifying this way, so that when he comes under judgment as our sin bearer, that people will turn from their sin. To him. And church, that is the gospel. He took God's punishment for my evil works, for your evil works, for that 99 year old man's evil works, and for the evil works of his brothers in this very chapter so that we could turn to him and have no punishment for those evil works because he took all the punishment. Listen, I love in this chapter that we don't have to wonder, well, whatever happened to those brothers? Whatever these brothers that are goading him on who don't believe? Because we know if you turned over to your Bible's table of contents, there are twenty seven New Testament books. Two of those books are James and Jude. Those are two of the guys right here in chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Those are two of Jesus' half-brothers who right now don't believe in him, that are goading him on. And yet, in our New Testament, we have books by James and Jude who have come to faith in the very one they didn't believe in in this chapter. I I like before and after pics I'm one of those guys that just, I like to see, like if someone is on a diet or going through an exercise program and they have before pics and after pics, like the transformation in their bodies, that's great when that happens. It's even greater when there's spiritual transformation. We get to see the before and after pics of James and Jude here in John chapter 7, spiritually rejecting Jesus, and then what it looks like when they come to faith in Jesus. What happened? What happened to do all that? Here's what happened. On a cross, Jesus died. For my sin, for your sin, but also for James's sin and for Jude's sin. Taking the punishment, Jesus bore it all. And he rose again, and they saw he really is the Messiah. He really is the one We should believe in Our our plan made sense when we were of the world. He should go. He should get popular. He should gain a following. But here's the answer to how Jesus gained the following. In John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And some of those all people are James and Jude. It is by Jesus' death, and resurrection. That made all the difference. They're no longer verse 7 people, people of the world. They're now those of verses 17 and 18. Church, I am so grateful that Jesus loves sinners. I'm so grateful that the Father draws sinners to Jesus. I'm so grateful that He drew me. And I know that if you're in Christ, you are so grateful That he drew you. And may he draw so many to faith. We have heard in recent months about revival on some of our university campuses. And that is fantastic. We should desire more of that. That is a great thing to hear about. But I was reminded even this week in a conversation with some of our members, uh, specifically one member, of an incredible revival that took place, not on university campus, but another campus, the campus of Angola Prison, where there are some sinners in, those, in that prison. There are people who have done some of these evil works, right? But great ministry in the past 20-ish years have been taking place in this prison near New Orleans where people are taking the gospel inside that prison. People are hearing the good news about Jesus. People are seeing that their works were evil, but the work of Jesus Christ is perfect, and they're putting their faith in Christ. Some of these men willed God's will, heard the gospel, saw the truth and beauty of Jesus, And they were transformed. And today if you have seen the truth and beauty of Jesus. Our response is worship. Today and every day our response is to worship. And if right now you are having your eyes opened by God's spirit. To the truth and beauty of Jesus. And maybe you never have before. But you're seeing him not just as another religious leader but as the only person who can rescue you from your sin and make you right with God, then today put your faith in Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for this good news we see in John chapter 7. Lord, thank you for saving sinners. Thank you for waking us up to our sin, the rebellion it is, the evil of our works, and turning us... To faith in Jesus. For all those who are Christians in this room. We owe you our worship. And we give it. Not begrudgingly. But willingly. And Lord I also pray that if there are those who are. Listening by Facebook. Listening on radio. Or in this room this morning. That are just now. Seeing Jesus rightly Lord. That they will believe. That they will repent. That they will turn to you in faith. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross. If it's our works, we're done. We deserve judgment. But the work of Jesus is perfect. He is our hope in life and in death. Amen.